Well, both campuses, if you have your Bibles open to Matthew chapter 9, would you shout amen? Amen. 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 So let me welcome you to week number two, week two, where we're thinking together for five Sunday mornings about this idea of thriving. I asked you an important question last week. I said, are you thriving or are you simply surviving? And there's a big difference between thriving and surviving. Uh, Let me remind you of the definition of what it means to thrive. Very simply, when we speak of thriving, we're talking about a life that is flourishing, a life that is prospering. And I don't mean materially or financially, but I'm talking about in in so many ways in our lives, spiritually, relationally, um, are we prospering? Um, A good Bible word is the word fruit or fruitfulness in your life. Do you see fruit in various areas? And last week we talked about the fact that while some of us would say, or really all of us would say, I thrive in some areas, I struggle in other areas, the truth is that all of us want to thrive. Now, we know what this looks like physically, right? We know that if we are going to thrive physically, there are some must-haves. There, there are some necessities if we're going to thrive physically. Let me give you three of them. Number one is nutrition, right? You have to eat if you're going to thrive, and you ought to eat well, eat good, nutritious food if you're going to thrive physically. Number two, you need exercise. And number three, you need hydration, water. You can't thrive if you don't drink enough water. You can't live if you don't drink water, period. And so you have to have those three things, nutrition, exercise, and hydration, in order to thrive physically. Well, do you know that the same thing is true spiritually? That if I'm going to thrive spiritually, I need spiritual nutrition, I need to engage in spiritual exercise, and I need spiritual water or spiritual hydration. And so we're, we're going to take those three must-haves over the next five weeks or during these five weeks. And in your life group, your life group leader every week is being given these three must-haves. Every week, some spiritual nutrition that you are to take in. This is the Word of God. Some spiritual exercise that we want you to engage in. This is our work for God. And then some spiritual hydration that we want you to receive, which is your worship of God. That is, as we drink in his spirit and his presence in worship. And so I hope you'll take these three things seriously every single week through your life group. And together that you'll say, I want to I be spiritually uh, uh, strong because I'm taking in the word. I want to be spiritually strong because I'm exercising, I'm working uh, in this thing thing of working for the Lord. And I want to have spiritual hydration. I want to be a worshiper of God. Last week, we talked about thriving as a disciple of Jesus. Thriving as a disciple of Jesus. And I said to you that there are two things that are true of disciples. I want to remind you of them. The first one was this. We said that disciples are devoted to Jesus. Do you remember that? Disciples are people who are devoted to to Jesus. Here was Jesus' criticism of Peter, and Peter's not living like a disciple. He said to Peter, you are savoring not the things that be of God, but the things that be of man. Do you remember what the word savor means I told you last week? 
To savor something means to set your mind on it. It means to hold the viewpoint of or to set your affections there. It is to think on those things. Here's what we learned. That a disciple is a person whose mind is changing, our thinking is changing, so that we are beginning to think like Jesus thinks. I cannot be a disciple if my worldview, my mindset, my values, the way that I live my life, the way that I view things in this life, the way that I view my family, the way that I view my career, the way that I view my calendar, the way that I view my money, if all of these things are my way of thinking and they are not Christ's way of thinking, then I'm not a disciple. To be his disciple means I need to bring all of those things and surrender my thinking to his thinking. Does that make sense? I'm devoted to him by changing the way that I think to think like he thinks. The second thing that we learned last week is that a disciple is someone who is dying to himself or dying to themselves. Uh, Last week we learned that a disciple is someone who gets off the throne of their lives and they kneel down and they let Jesus ascend the throne and they say, I don't run my life, Lord. You do. That song that we sang on both campuses, you sang it at East Campus as well a moment ago, is this song, that, that last song where the lyric says, if more of you means less of me, then take everything. That's a discipleship song. That's a discipleship lyric. That it's not about me. Life is not about me. I'm dying to myself and I want my life to be about Jesus. So a disciple is someone who is changing their mind to think like Jesus. They're devoted and they are dying to themselves, less of me and more of you. So here's my question. Are you thriving as a disciple of Jesus? Are you? Are you thriving in your Christian walk? Are you thriving as a disciple? Well, the answer to that question will be revealed, at least in large part, to your answer to my next question. So let me ask you this important question. What would you say is the most important thing in your life? If if you were writing out a sentence and you had to fill in a blank, the most important thing in my life is, what would you say? Now here's the truth. If you are a disciple of Jesus and I am a disciple of Jesus, then our answers should look very much alike, shouldn't they? Because really, what is the most important thing to Jesus ought to be the most important thing to me if I'm his disciple, because my mind is aligning to think like his, and it ought to be the most important thing to you, and therefore our minds ought to be thinking very much alike. Which, by the way, would mean that if you, are, if you value uh, the things that Jesus values, and I value the things that Jesus values, then the values of our church will be, uh, will be a reflection of the things that we value individually. We could ask the question, the most important thing to Brookstone Church is what? What is it that we value the most? Well, I would suggest to you, I would uh, submit to you that, that if we want to know what the answer ought to be, what's the most important thing to you, me, or our church, we ought to look at what matters to Jesus and what matters to him, what he would say 
is the most important thing is what we should say. We, sh- we could say WWJS, not WWJD, but WWJS, what would Jesus say, is the most important thing. Did you know that if you read the post-resurrection um, comments of Jesus, if you look through the Gospels and the book of Acts and you look at every single time that Jesus shows up somewhere after his resurrection, that virtually every single time he says the same things to his disciples. It's almost identical every time. Now, there are a couple of exceptions where we see him after his resurrection, and he doesn't mention this this particular thing, but virtually every single time, Jesus says the same thing in different ways, but he says the same things. You see it over and over again if you want to check me on it. You can go read Matthew 28. You can read Mark 16. You can read Luke 24, John chapter 20, Acts chapter 1, even Acts chapter 9, after his ascension, when he speaks to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Virtually every single time, Jesus says the same thing, and it's this. Go and tell people about me. Tell, my, tell the nations about me. Spread my gospel. Be my witnesses. It is what he says every single time. And it's not ancillary. It's not an afterthought. He doesn't give them a bunch of information. Do this, live that way, do this, go to church, do the other things. And as he's ascending, he says, oh, and by the way, tell people about me. No, what he does. Every time, almost, that he opens his mouth after his resurrection, he looks into the eyes of his disciples and he says, here's what matters. The world needs to know about me. And you are to go and tell them about me. The most important thing to Jesus is his mission. And the most important thing to me ought to be the mission of Jesus Christ. And the most important thing in your life, if you are his disciple, ought to be the mission of Christ. And the most important thing about Brookstone Church ought to always be the mission to which we have been called. In 2011, we coined a phrase around here. Some of you remember this because you were here in 2011. Others of you weren't here that far back. But if you were here, I think you'll remember the phrase. This was in This was in the time frame when we as a church were looking to make our move from Reynolds Mountain in North Asheville to our new campus in Weaverville. And we were were focusing our attention on that move and, and carrying forth the gospel in a new season. And we coined this phrase. Here's what we said. Nothing matters more than the mission. Do you all remember that? Remember remember us talking about that? It, It came to be the, the, the mantra that we would recite. It came to be the thing that we would emphasize over and over. Nothing matters more than the mission. That doesn't mean, mean that nothing else matters. A lot of things are important. It doesn't mean that, that everything else is unimportant, but it means that, that there should be nothing else that takes precedence over the mission. I would suggest to you that there are very many people who call themselves disciples of Jesus, for whom the mission of the gospel is relatively low on their values scale. 
And I would suggest to you that there are very many churches that dot the landscape that have no impact in their community because they value lots of things more than they value the mission. The words of Jesus himself, on the basis of the words of the resurrected Christ, we can say with confidence, nothing matters more than the mission. And the mission is that we would tell the world about the power and the grace of Jesus Christ. Here's the principle I want you to write down today, and I hope you'll embrace it. I want to embrace it, and I want you to as well. It is very simply that to thrive, to thrive, I must grow as a witness for Christ. If I'm going to thrive spiritually, if I'm going to thrive as a disciple, I must grow as a witness for Christ, and we can surely all grow in this regard. Matthew chapter number 9 is our text. Let me set the scene for you just before we begin reading in verse number 9. By the time you arrive to this point in the life of Jesus, in the narrative of Matthew, the, um, the ministry of Jesus is well underway. Already, Jesus has been preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Already, his fame is beginning to spread. He's already performing miracles. And because of his preaching and because of his miracles, great crowds are gathering to him. He's already healed lepers. He's already raised up the, you remember the the text where in Capernaum, you'll find it in the early verses of Matthew 9, where four friends have a friend who's who's laid uh, on a bed and they bring his cot, tear the roof off of a house and let him down through the ceiling and Jesus heals him. That happens uh, in the early verses of chapter 9. He's already performing miracles like that. He's already been over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee and delivered the demoniac from 2,000 demons that were possessing him. He's already healed Peter's mother-in-law. I mean, there's a lot going on. And because of that, by the time you get to our text, the Bible says that there are lots of people who are crowding to Jesus. Matthew chapter 4 Verses 24 and 25 say it this way, that people are coming from all over the northern part of the land and that his fame is spreading. And if you look at Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 8, again, he performs a miracle and the multitudes see it. Well, how'd they see it? They saw it because they were there. They were following him around. So everywhere Jesus goes in Matthew chapter number 9, he's not alone. He doesn't have just a few disciples with him. There's a crowd following him around. And among that crowd are Andrew and Peter and James and John and Nathaniel and Philip. And today, Jesus is going to add Matthew or Levi to his ranks. Let's read it. I'm in Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 9. The Bible says, And as Jesus passed forth from there, he saw a man named Matthew, sitting at the receipt of custom. Receipt of custom, what is that? Custom means tax. He's sitting at the place where you paid your taxes. Remember, he's a tax collector, a publican. We talked about it last week. He's sitting at his desk, in his booth, his little office. And this is where people would come by to pay their taxes. So Jesus walks by, he sees him there, and he said to him, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. And it came to pass, as Jesus sat at meat at a meal in the house, 
Behold, many publicans, many tax collectors, and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, Why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? I sort of feel like I should read that with a bit more of a condescending voice. (laughs) Why does your master eat with sinners? Publicans. But when Jesus heard this, verse number 12, he said unto them, They that be whole do not need a physician, but rather they that are sick. But you go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's a pretty straightforward passage, isn't it? It's pretty simple. Uh, it doesn't really require a lot of explanation. You understand what happened right here. So you're dismissed. God bless you. <laughs> Don't go anywhere just yet. Let's apply it. Jesus is walking through Capernaum. Matthew's at his job. Jesus says, Matthew, follow me. Matthew gets up and follows him. There's a meal. There's a lot of people at the meal. Jesus is at the meal with publicans and sinners as well as his disciples. The Pharisees criticize him for that. And Jesus explains to them, this is why I came. This is why I came. I want us to talk about this a bit today because I think there are some principles that we can learn as people who want to thrive as disciples of Christ by aligning our thinking and embracing the value of Christ's mission. I think there's some principles that we can learn. Let's start with the big picture. Write this down. In this passage, you clearly see Christ's uh, mission, the mission of Christ in this passage. I recently asked a group of people that I was speaking to a, a simple question. I said to them, tell me why you think Jesus Christ came to earth. What do you think the life of Jesus was all about? And people have a lot of different answers to that question. You know, some people think, well, Jesus came to be a prophet. He was a proclaimer of the truth of God. He came to be a preacher. And he was that, to be sure. Um, other people will say, well, more than that, he, he came more uh, to teach than to preach. Jesus was a great teacher. He taught parables in very simple ways and helped us understand God. He was a, he was a great teacher, master teacher. That's certainly true. Um, Sometimes people would say, well, it's more than that. He came to be more than just a teacher. He came to model it. He came to show us how to live in this life. And if, if we live like Jesus lived in this life, then we're preparing for eternity and let's just walk like Jesus walked and everything will be good. And surely Jesus did show us a way to live. But here's the truth. Jesus didn't come just to preach, teach, or to model. In fact, the Bible tells us exactly why Jesus came. Listen to what Paul said. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 15. Paul says, this is a trustworthy saying, a true saying, and worthy of full acceptance. Everybody should agree on this. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am chief. Paul is very clear. Jesus came for one reason. One reason only. It is to save sinners. We should all agree on that. Whether you've been saved by him or not, You should agree that is the reason for which he came, to save sinners. Even Jesus said this, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. Jesus said, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to save the lost. 
Now, in our text in Matthew 9, he says this very thing, and he gets very specific uh, in, he, in the way that he says it. Look at chapter 9 and verse number 12. He says to them that the, uh, those that are whole, verse 12, they that be whole do not need a physician, but rather they that are sick. Here's why Jesus came. Here's his mission. He came to heal sick people. I'm not talking about physical sickness, although he does that sometimes, but he came to heal our spiritual sickness, our sin disease, our sin sickness. He came because people are sick. He says the sick need a physician, not the whole. Well, people don't need a doctor. He goes on in verse number 13 to say, I did not come to call the righteous I didn't come to call the righteous to repentance, but rather to call sinners to repentance. Jesus said, I came because people are sick and people are sinners. People are sick with sin. Now, by the way, you'll notice in verses 12 and 13, he said, if you're not sick, you don't need me. And if you're not unrighteous, you don't need me. I came for the sick and the unrighteous. Now, is he saying that there are some people who can say, you know what, I'm okay, I'm righteous, I'm well, I don't need Jesus. No, here's what he's saying. If you don't know that you're sick, you don't know that you need a physician. And if you don't understand that you're unrighteous, then you don't understand that you need repentance and that you need a savior. He's simply making the point that all of us are sick, all of us are unrighteous, and all of us need him. So may I ask you, what do you say of yourself today? What is your self-assessment? Are you, by your own admission, unrighteous? Are you a sinner? And because of your sin, is your soul sick? Well, if you would say, well, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm not perfect. We all are. Then good news. Admitting that is half the battle. Now recognize that Jesus is the Savior. Jesus is the physician. And he came to save your sick soul and mine. That sounded a little worse than maybe I would normally say it. He came to save your sick soul, all right? (laughs) But we have to admit that we're sick and that we are unrighteous. Well, listen, if this is the mission that Jesus came for, if this is the reason for which he came, if this is what Jesus says matters the most, then if we are his disciples, we must make his mission our mission. Do you agree? If that matters the most to him, then it ought to matter the most to us as well. His mission must become ours. And it certainly became Matthew's. In fact, I would suggest that it became Matthew's mission almost immediately upon meeting Jesus. We've talked about the mission of Christ. He came to save the lost. Let's talk about Matthew for a minute, Matthew's mission. But I didn't want to call it Matthew's mission, so I changed it a bit. Let's call it Matthew's meal plan. I don't know if that's a good way to say it, but maybe it'll help you to remember it. Matthew's meal plan. Because he had a plan, and he prepared a meal. Look at what the Bible says. Matthew chapter number 9 and verse number 10. Jesus, immediately after calling Matthew, is now at a meal, sitting at meat, sitting at a meal, a banquet in a house. Now, this is not a random banquet. They didn't go down to the JNS of the day and have a meal together. 
The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 5 and verse 29 that this is a meal that Matthew prepared himself in his own house. And if you'll go with me to Mark, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 2 and verse number 15. Because you'll see some, uh, some interesting detail in Mark chapter 2 verse 15 about this meal. Look at it, just one verse. Mark 2 15, it says, It came to pass that it, as Jesus sat at meat in Matthew's house, many, everybody say the word many at both campuses, many, how many was it? Many. many Many publicans, that's many tax collectors, and many sinners. Now, when the Bible uses the word sinners, it is simply referring to common people. It doesn't mean that these are necessarily, you know, the, 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 uh, the most vile people in town. Surely, maybe some of them were there too. But it just means secular people, people who aren't religious. They're not following the Mosaic law, the commands of the Pharisees. They're, they're just... They're sinners like all of us. It says in verse number 15, Jesus is at this meal. There are many publicans there. There are many sinners uh, there. Jesus is there. His disciples are there. And there are many of his disciples that are there. How many disciples are there? There are many. How many publicans? There are many publicans and many sinners and many disciples. This is a banquet. It is a large meal. This is Matthew's meal. And there are a couple of principles I think that we can learn about witnessing by watching Matthew's meal, learning from it. First of all, here's what I would say. Jot it down. It is that from Matthew we can learn something about generosity. It's this. It is that generosity is a witnessing principle. Generosity is a witnessing principle. I was emphasizing for you for a reason the fact that there were many publicans, many sinners, and many disciples that were there. I don't know exactly how many people were there, but there were a lot of people. And this is taking place in Matthew's house. And Matthew provided this meal at his own expense. And so because he had been transformed by Jesus and he wanted other people to be transformed by Jesus, he went to great personal expense and he demonstrated great generosity, personal generosity, to provide a meal so that Jesus could come there and his disciples could gather there and the publicans and the sinners could come there. They could all have a meal together. Do you know what I've learned about generous people, generous disciples? It is that they are generous not because they love projects, but because they love people. They want to invest in the work that reaches people. And they know that when they make an investment into the work of God, that he will use that to see more and more people come to faith in Jesus. Every time I give my tithe, every time I make an offering into the ministry of Brookstone Church, Here's what I know, that people are going to hear the gospel in a myriad of ways and through dozens of voices and on many different platforms because I can't do it all, but there are ministries that happen daily throughout the community and the world. And I know that any generosity on my part is propelling that mission forward. It's the reason we call you to be generous in your giving, to live with generosity because you are, compe- or you are propelling the mission to go forward. 
when we give generously, we make a difference in the lives of people. And this is what Matthew's principle teaches us, that we ought to invest, we ought to be generous, liberal in our giving for the sake of the gospel. Generosity is a witnessing value. I've never known a tight-fisted, miserly person who was, who was excited about the work of the gospel and who was pouring into the work of the gospel, certainly not financially, but in any other way as well. Generosity is a witnessing principle. Generous people love the mission. Number two, the second principle from Matthew's meal is that humility is a witnessing value. Humility. Notice how Mark draws us into the banquet as he describes this gathering in verse number 15 when he talks about this great host of people in this massive banquet and there must have been a beautiful spread of food and and many tables and Jesus in the middle of it and surrounding Jesus are his disciples, many of them, not just the six that were called before Matthew, but many of these people in this crowd following him around are there. Many publicans, friends of Matthew's, acquaintances, associates of Matthew's from the tax collecting business. Maybe they had just been to a publican's conference and he had all of their emails and he invited them over for lunch. I don't know. But he had all of his publican friends there and all of his sinner friends there. And notice what Mark says. It's beautiful the way he draws uh, draws us into it. He says in verse number 15, there's publicans and there's sinners and there's Jesus and disciples And they're all mingling together. You know what that tells me? There was a spirit of humility in those disciples. That they were willing to sit at the table with people who didn't think like them. People who hadn't been converted like they'd been converted. People who didn't know about Jesus, what they knew about Jesus. People who were just coming to understand who this Jesus was. People who were publicans and sinners. And they sat at the table with them. And the sinners knew that they were welcome at the table. And the saints at the table knew what sinners they were and how Christ had redeemed them and transformed them from their sin. And so they came together around the person of Jesus. I think that's instructive for us. And I think if we're going to value the mission of Jesus like Jesus values his mission, if we're going to think like Jesus thinks and align our thinking to thrive as his disciple because we value witnessing, being his witness, then we will begin to say, I need to be generous. Financially, yes, but generous in my spirit and generous with my time and generous in my heart for the gospel. And we will begin to live with a humility that welcomes people who haven't met Jesus yet and will love them. Let me make five suggestions to you, and I hope you'll take each of these and at least implement a few of them. Five suggestions that will improve your witness effectiveness. Number one, if you want to begin to make the mission of Jesus central in your life, you must be trained in how to share the gospel. You must. You must learn how to do it. Many of us don't share the gospel because we don't know how. You know that's true. I've said it to you dozens of times, and you know it in your own experience. I would talk to them, but I don't know what to say. I would share the gospel, but I I don't think they would want to hear it, and I'm not sure. And what if they ask me a question I can't answer, and I don't know how to. It's it's just all a, a, a myriad of I don't knows, and it's uncertain, and what if. That all comes from just not knowing how. 
So if you want to make this mission central to your life, get trained. Three times a year, three semesters a year. You know it at Brookstone. We train you. Right after the new year, we'll implement a new semester of evangelism training. Learn to do it. We will teach you. If you say, I'd love to share, but I don't know how. Well, you should never have to say that because you're in a church where we will teach you how. Number two, second suggestion, is make a prayer list. Start there. Begin to pray for people who don't need the Lord. If, if you, you have friends and relatives, I have friends and relatives and neighbors and associates, they, classmates, they don't know Jesus, start praying for them. Just make a list, two, three, five, ten, and just begin to pray, God, would you save these people? And you know what will happen? Something will be transformed in your heart as you begin to lift them to the Lord. Number three, participate. When we talk about come and see, inviting your family and your friends to come and see what God is doing here. Don't just say, oh, that's for those other church people. That's not me. No, it's for you. Bring them. Take that seriously. Number four, plan a meal. Be like Matthew. Plan a meal and invite somebody who doesn't know the Lord. We always tend to have lunch with our Christian buddies and we have a meal, a dinner. We invite our Christian friends over. We eat with our life group, whatever. Oh, that's great. That's important. But what if you just planned a meal and you invited those neighbors who they are just as lost as a duck in the desert? (laughs) That's lost. And what if you just invited them to come and just have dinner with you at your house? Do that and and, uh, see what happens and begin to develop a friendship and maybe... You can share the gospel with them. Number five, choose generosity. Live with generosity. Don't be miserly. Be open-handed. Give your tithes to your church. Make your offerings into ministry and watch God develop a heart of generosity for the gospel. So you have the mission of Christ. It ought to be our mission. And Matthew's plan, Matthew's meal plan shows us how to do it. We'll go back to Matthew chapter number nine for us to finish. And I want you to see one final thing here. And it's It's very simply why religious people often miss the mission. And I'm sorry to say it's true. We do. We often miss the mission of Jesus. And why is that the case? Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, 12, 13, tell us uh, or show us this scene from the perspective of the Pharisees. Matthew, you got to love the zeal of this new believer. He's, He's so excited to know Jesus and he's inviting all his friends. Come on for dinner and and you've seen this in church over the years somebody gets saved and they're on fire and they're just doing all this you know whatever they can do to reach people that's Matthew and then you've got the 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 people who've been around for a while (laughs) they're standing back watching and the Pharisees are watching and they're they're watching all these people coming in and what's he doing here why is she here and I can't believe Matthew would invite that person and look at all those people following Jesus and they're supposed to be holy and righteous he's a he claims to be the messiah and look at all these sinners and there's Jesus right in the mix of them and the religious people are standing back criticizing why'd they miss it two reasons i think number 1 number 1 was because they thought they were better than those sinners. And you know, I think oftentimes that's the case in church. We think we're better. Now the truth is, they were better morally, and we ought to be better than the world morally, right? We ought to live differently than they live. But the truth is, in terms of the value of your soul or mine, it is no more intrinsically valuable than the soul of the biggest sinner in town. Because we're all made in the image of God. The difference is we've been redeemed and transformed and they haven't. And so if we will remember, I'm simply rescued. I'm not better than. 
I'm simply saved. I'm not superior to. They thought they were better. Therefore, they criticized anybody that would gather with them. Secondly, they believed that God valued their separation more than he valued the souls of those lost people. Now, the Bible teaches biblical separation, right? That we are to come out from the world and be separate. The Bible is clear to tell us this. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that we, we don't mingle with the world. It doesn't mean that we don't have friends that are unsaved. It doesn't mean that we're not engaging with lost people. It means that our lives look differently, that we're separate in terms of our behavior and our values and the, and the way that we live. It doesn't mean that we don't engage with them. In fact, in one place, the scripture says, if you were not going to be among them, you would have to die and leave the world. And so they believed that their separation from sinners, that God looked at that and went, that's good. I'm glad you're separate. That he valued that more than he valued the souls of the lost people. And this is the reason that Jesus says, look at it, Matthew chapter number nine and verse number 13. And Matthew's the only one that records this. And I'm not sure, obviously the Holy Spirit only wanted it here, but maybe this criticism was made to Matthew and he heard Jesus' response. But he's the only one that records that Jesus, in verse number 13, says to those Pharisees, go and learn. Go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Where'd that come from? Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It's a direct quote. Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus said to those Pharisees who knew the law, you go study the law and you learn this, that God cares more about people than he does about your religious performance. If y'all are listening to both campuses, shout amen. amen. Can I say it again? God cares more about people than he does our religious performance. Does he want us to be separate from the world in the way that we live and what we value? Absolutely. Does he want us to engage with the lost like Matthew did to reach them with the gospel, to live on mission? Absolutely. And he wants us to value their souls because he values their souls. I would say it to you this way. God is more interested in how many disciples you influence than he is in how many duties you perform. He's more interested in how many souls are reached than he is in how much service is rendered. If Jesus spent all of his time after his death and resurrection while he was talking to people here on the earth, even on the Isle of Patmos when he spoke, as John recorded the last words that Jesus said in the book of Revelation, come, the bride and the spirit say come. If Jesus spent all of his time post-resurrection, post-ascension, saying, go and tell, be a witness. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You go be my witnesses. You tell the world. You teach the nations. You teach them about me. You go and tell. If that is what he values, then if I'm his disciple, my mindset must begin to shift and I must begin to value that as well. The principle is clear. If I'm going to thrive as a disciple, I must grow as a witness of Christ. And so let me close where I began. What is the most important thing in life to you?
I hope that it will begin to be the mission of the gospel of Jesus Christ.